We're glad you're here this morning. I want to uh, begin with prayer this morning and uh, or continue our time of worship and praying specifically uh, for another church in our community. I want to pray also. Um, I uh, struggle this time of season uh, particularly with high expectations on myself, um, feeling like I really want to give you an experience. You know, I really want to give you something meaningful, and um, it's really just a meal, just a meal like any other. We take and eat every Sunday. And I have to remind myself of that because I can't somehow conjure up an experience for you. That's not my job. I'm not a cheerleader. I'm not the Holy Spirit. I want to be used by the Holy Spirit this morning. That's a big difference. So I'm saying that out loud and publicly so I can shoot that thing right in front of us because you can shoot a target that's uh, obvious. So I'm going to shoot it through prayer. Um, I want to care really very little about what you think about me as a preacher. Um, I want you to think a lot about God this morning. That's my goal. So... Um, that's going to be part of our prayer. Uh, so let's pray. God, this morning, we want to pray uh, for another church in our community. We want to pray for Jimmy Vaughn. I'm thankful for uh, the opportunity to serve alongside Jimmy in this community, uh, the opportunities that we have to, to uh, talk together and um, weigh in on different things. Lord, I'm just grateful for that opportunity this past week. Um, just gave me a, an appreciation, a, a renewed appreciation for the kind of man that he is. Lord, I'm thankful for his um, ministry to Authentic Life Fellowship, Lord, and the, the, uh, the burden that he has for having a meaningful uh, connection with folks and a meaningful experience as part of a church family together. Lord, we this morning want to lift up Authentic Life Fellowship. Lord, I pray that they are enjoying you this morning. They start at 10 as well, so they're in the throes of your presence, Lord, in the throne room right now. And I pray that they have an encounter with you uh, because the Holy Spirit is at work and using the preaching of the word, uh, that he is using uh, worship and song to make much of you. And, um, Lord, that they are being edified, equipped, built up, encouraged, uh, that they are given a lens for how to view this season, how to view their circumstances, how to view their trials and their triumphs and everything in between. And I pray all of those things for us as well, Lord that this time will be really a time that you will use to make much of yourself. And um, I um, pray that you would just kind of move a frail, feeble uh, human being out of the way this morning. Maybe use his mouth, uh, use a weekend study, uh, use your word, Lord. Use these wonderful stories that we have a chance to uh, enjoy this morning, um, that you would use those to really create a room full of people that are adoring you this morning. Uh, turn this time over to you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 1. This is our second week of Advent. We have four Sundays in Advent, and all four Sundays will be in the book of Luke. So if you want to read ahead and study ahead, we'll be in Luke chapters 1 and 2. So you can really sort of prepare yourself and, and uh, saturate your, your study time and your reading time, prayer time with those two chapters. And I think you'll come into Sunday mornings really having um, uh, prepared your hearts and prepared your minds for our time together in the Word. The book of Luke was written to a guy named Theophilus. Uh, as Brad pointed out last week, we don't really know who this guy was. Um, he may have been a new convert. Uh, we, don't, we just don't have any clues into who he was. But one of the things that I've enjoyed about Theophilus over the years is what his name means. It means lover of God. And there actually is a, um, a thought, a consideration that maybe this goes to a general God lover and not any particular person, but goes to those who are lovers of God, that they want to be certain about what they're believing and that the book of Luke and then Acts are great escorts into that. So... Um, I want to be a God lover, and I want you all to be God lovers as well. That's really my burden for this season is that we would be God lovers and not just love the things that he's done or love the things that he's going to do or love the things uh, that we think about him like his attributes and his, his um, traits, but that we actually love the being, the person of God. I think man, that's, that's kind of a... It shouldn't be a novel notion, but it is a novel notion for me to consider God not as a collection of truths, but as a real being who's actually here with us this morning. 
like here with us, and is mindful and aware of the thoughts and intentions of your hearts as we gather. Man, I just want to just think on that for a minute and think, what a great book for us to go to in Advent, where it's a time where we really want to enjoy and adore this being, that this is written to a fellow God lover. I, I, that's, that's a burden for me in this season, is that we experience the being and person of God. Sure, we're going to consider some of the things he's done. We're going to consider some of the things he has yet to do. But those are just escorts to the person. I mean, let me kind of personalize this for you so you really are getting what I'm getting at in this sort of introduction. The men in the room, the married men in this room, hopefully you are thankful for your wives. You're thankful for the things that they do for you, maybe uh, tending to your home. And I'm not assuming that it may be dudes that do that, but I'm just assuming a lot of times it's a, a wife that cares for the home and shops, you know, and buys groceries. And I'm not pigeonholing women here, but I'm saying that, that happens a lot. Guys in the room, I hope that you're thankful for your wives, but that you see those things that she does for you only simply as, as escorts to where you can truly enjoy the person of your wife. As a person, I've told this story a million times, and I'll tell it again. I asked Daniel when he was a little boy why he loved his mom. And he said, well, she makes good sandwiches. She scratches my back. And I want, yeah, I'll tell the last one. She wipes my bottom when I need help. <laughs> I mean, hopefully... You know, that's cool when Daniel's like three, but it's not cool when Daniel's 30 <laughs> for lots of reasons, obviously, the <laughs> things that we're thinking about. But beyond that, that he loves his mom and enjoys his mom for who she is. You understand the difference? Do you realize we could be here this morning just going to collect some new data on this, this, this idea of God and miss God altogether? Man, let's not miss God. Let's join a fellow God lover here. A Theophilus, whether it's a man or whether it's a group of people, we can be a room together full of God lovers and enjoying together what these things are going to do for us and helping us love him more. It's a story really of vignettes and little, uh, or it's a grouping of vignettes, little stories, little narratives within the book of Luke that I think will help us with our God loving. Uh, Luke is not making a case here uh, and an argument through points and supporting arguments and supporting points. He's presenting stories. So we can sort of climb into these stories and we can bump around and, and kind of get dirty in these stories and eat what they eat and see what they see and experience and what they experience, feel their feels. And we can walk away, hopefully, more potent God lovers. And that's my prayer. Here's the setting. Gabriel's been busy. Gabriel has uh, met with Zechariah in the temple. He's announced to Zechariah that Zechariah is going to have a son. His name will be John. It's going to be John the Baptist. Gabriel then meets with Mary, tells Mary what's in store for her to be the mother of the Lord. Um, and here we're going to jump into sort of a, uh, uh, just kind of give you a little context through reading the passage in verse 39. Mary is going to visit Elizabeth. That's Zechariah's wife. Uh, Mary's aunt. It's a family member. She's going to visit Elizabeth here in verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. It's a really quiet home, by the way. If you read the story, you'll understand why it's a pretty quiet setting that this little jubilant moment takes place. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women. This is, this is a beautiful blessing from Elizabeth to her uh, niece, um, and it's going to have some data points in it. It's not the focus of our message, but it gives us kind of a setting for Mary's response, which is where we're going to be spending the morning. Elizabeth blesses Mary by saying, Blessed are you among women. And blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? In some ways she's saying, blessed am I as an aunt, as a host, that you're coming to make this blessed visit into my home. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. That's John the Baptist that she's carrying at that moment. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And by the way, Mary, you're blessed for believing everything that's been shared with you through Gabriel. It's a pretty important 
a pretty wonderful blessing. And again, in a very quiet home, this would stand in stark contrast to the silence. Um, Mary's going to respond with what is called the Magnificat. It's a beautiful passage of Scripture. It's where we're going to be spending our morning. And I want to give you a little map, uh, kind of a map, a guide. Uh, if you're like me, sometimes you drift off and you think about lunch or you think about some to-dos you want to tackle in the afternoon. It doesn't mean you're evil. I mean you're human, okay? So let me kind of give you a map for where we are going to where you can jump back in if you get distracted thinking about changing the oil in your car, okay? So we're going to look at basically four pieces of the Magnificat. We're going to break the Magnificat down into four pieces, okay? The first piece is going to be verses 47 and four, or excuse me, 46 and 47. The second little chunk is going to be verses 48, just, excuse me, just 48. The third chunk will be verses 49 through 53. And the last little piece is going to be verses 44, or excuse me, 54 and 55. And size-wise, in terms of, uh, of amount of time and effort that we're going to spend, we're going to spend the majority of our time on sections two and then especially three. Okay, so I want to give you that, that guide again so you can... Jump back in if you get distracted. The first section will be verse 46 and 47. Second section is verse 48. The third section is verse 49 through 53. And the last section, verse 54 and 55. This is Mary's response to Elizabeth's blessing. Okay, Elizabeth she steps into the home. Elizabeth gives this jubilant blessing of Mary. And this is Mary's response. She uh, magnifies, it says her soul magnifies the Lord. And she says, my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. One of the cool things that we see from Mary right off the bat is that her mouth joins up with her soul and joins up with her spirit, where you get this sense that all of this 14 year old, if she was 13 or 14 years old, is caught up in responding to this blessing and caught up in responding to what God is doing with her. Mouth joins soul and joins spirit, and she magnifies the Lord and rejoices in God, her Savior. Magnificat is actually a Latin word for magnify. Okay? The Greek word is actually um, megaluno, which is cool. You don't have to think real hard to kind of break that word down to think about what magnifying would mean. Megaluno, going to shed some mega light on something. Okay, a cool way to think about what, what it means to magnify the Lord. Um, it, it's it's not, not magnification like, like a microscope, like you're in chemistry class and you're you know, going to scope that little tiny little obscure thing out and that thing helps you see this little thing that's tiny and obscure. It's not that kind of magnification. It's the kind of magnification that you're in astronomy class or whatever. I guess it would be astronomy. And they pull out this massive telescope like it has a motor. You know what I'm talking about, those big telescopes. And you sit behind this thing, and you, you look in there, and you're, you're able to view something that's colossal. Okay? You're able to take in through one little bitty lens or one, the, the eyepiece lens there. And for a moment, you're able to see something that you could not even uh, conceptualize. That's the kind of magnifying that Mary is doing in this Magnificat. She is bringing in view something that's really colossal, and specifically someone who's really colossal. She magnifies the Lord. She rejoices in the Lord. The word rejoice really means to make glad, and the word here actually means what would be like to be really, really, really glad. And the way it's phrased is interesting that it's actually past tense, that she's, I've been made glad on God, my Savior, on. It's a strange word, but it's, a, it's just like this. All of her is so connected to all of him that she is made glad on the Lord. I, um, as I've been thinking about my introduction this morning, I, I have been thinking on, in some ways, Mary um, illustrated exactly what I'm talking about. Mary's going to go into some details about what has made her... Um, enjoy the Lord, but I want you to notice the subject of her magnification and the subject of her rejoicing before we even move forward. It's the person of the Lord, the person of God, her Savior, the being that she's delighted in. The things that he has done for her are merely escorts to her really enjoying the person of God. She did in many ways what I'm hoping that we can do during Advent to enjoy 
the person of God. Now let's consider what she's viewing. We have a chance, I think, this morning to sort of look through her lens and see what she's bringing into view and what she's magnifying. So let's look together at verse 48. Verse 48 says, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. She's magnifying the Lord. She's rejoicing in God, her Savior. And she's bringing into view who this being is. She says, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, as in me, Mary. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. The humble estate of the servant, that word there in the original uh, language um, actually means barrenness. Okay, we don't have any sense or any reason to believe that Mary was barren. She's a maiden. She's a virgin. We don't know that. But the word also means poverty. It means humility, i.e. humble. I think the way she's using it, it seems to be the way she's using it in this passage, is that it summarily means insignificance. That this God, this massive, colossal being, has looked on the humble state of someone who's truly insignificant. I'm going to do something this morning that I would probably call preaching parkour. Like it's going to be really cool if we stick the landing, or it's going to be really funny if we don't. So, but we're going to try it. I'm going to try and share a parallel story with Mary because I think it's going to lend some insight into the story of Mary. So indulge me, if you would, and turn to the book of 1 Samuel. Keep a finger in Luke, and for the next while... Also keep a finger in the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 1. This account that I'm about to share with you is about a young woman named Hannah. Uh, It happens about 1,100 years or so before Mary. But I'm so convinced that Mary had a diet of this account that it informed the Magnificat, that I'm willing to try a little parkour, whatever the cost might be to me and how foolish I might look. I really don't care. So it's such a great story. Okay, So I'm going to read some excerpts here in the first chapter. I'm going to skip some sections with funny names because I don't really know how you say them, so I'm not going to even try. Actually, you know, the preacher's approach is really the same with confidence, and nobody's going to object to it, but I really don't want to even bother with it. So I'm going to begin in verse 1. I'm going to tell a little bit of the story of Hannah. Not all of it, because we're going to save it for later. There was a certain man named Elkanah, the son of Jeroham. He had two wives in verse 2. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Panini. She worked at Panera Bread. I've been saving that joke all week, you know, didn't get quite the laugh I was hoping. Actually, her name was Penina, all right, it's Penina, but I like making funny names or making versions of funny funny names in the Bible. Penina and and her children, oh, okay, the name of the other, this guy Elkanah had two wives, Hannah and Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children, okay? Hannah is what, in some ways, the word means over there in the Magnificat, or not, um, uh, for, for, for Mary, the humble estate. She is actually barren. Okay, so she is a literal version of what might be sort of symbolized over there in the Magnificat. Hannah had no children, and Penina had children. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship, to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. Shiloh is where the tabernacle was. This is before the kings, the, before the period of the kings. It's the tail end of the period of the judges. And the tabernacle was set up at Shiloh. So that's where people would go worship. Okay? Where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. Now, if you know the story about Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, you know that it, the, the priesthood was a mess. Okay? I mean, it literally was a mess. And these guys, Eli was uh, like visually a visual of the statehood of the priesthood. He's portly to the point where he, he eventually died by falling off a stool and breaking his neck. I mean, like, the guy was huge, apparently. And Phineas and Hophni are worldly and gluttonous. When people would bring sacrifices, they would take the fatty portions and eat them for themselves. 
All right, the state of the priesthood's in shambles. Okay, that's important background for this. Okay, Elkanah brings his two wives up to worship at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. You may not know that about the sacrificial system. is The worshipers actually partook some of the food. It was like a meal, sort of like an early version of the Lord's Supper. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Okay, so Penina is heckling Hannah, who is barren. Can you imagine a worse pain or a more difficult pain than to be heckled by the other wife in a marriage? That's painful enough to even imagine that. But then to imagine that she can have kids and you can't. That's what Hannah is experiencing. So it went on year by year. It wasn't a short-term deal. And as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? You've got to laugh about Elkanah, man. You're a knucklehead. I mean, that was just kind of dumb. She probably just rolled her eyes. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose... Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look, if you're like an underliner in your Bible, which I highly encourage, or a circler, circle that word, look. Underline that word, look. If you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, and and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli who is so fat, I mean literally, literally fat with the riches of what he shouldn't be taking, can't even see, he has no spiritual discernment. He can't even see that this woman is burdened, and he believed her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. We're going to come back to Hannah's story later. But in some ways, I think Hannah's story is a visual of Mary's experience because Mary was literally on the margins of society. Okay, Hannah is on the margins of her own home. She's excluded from the experience of child raising in her own home. She is mocked and ridiculed by the other wife. She was of humble estate, literally and figuratively. She was insignificant and barren. And Mary, too, was on the margins of society just being a Jew in a Roman province. You're marginalized just being Jewish. Add to that, she's a Jewish woman. Just being a woman in that culture, in some ways, you're going to be marginalized. But add to that, too, that she's a young, poor maiden. Mary was truly Insignificant. There's every reason in the world why she would never be considered for anything special in this world. But God looked on the humble estate of Mary. God sees the insignificant and God acts. That's where we're going next. If you go back to Luke chapter 1, um, beginning in uh, picking up. In verse 49. I'll give you a second to turn back there. 
For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He's shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. A couple of things come out of this passage that we can learn about Mary's view. We talked about this morning, we want to see her sees. We want to feel her feels, in some way climb into her experience. And she's seeing God as the mighty one. She's literally naming him the mighty one here. This is an Old Testament concept that's throughout the Old Testament. This concept of God being a warrior that fights for those who can't fight for themselves. If you haven't seen that in God before, you need to read your Old Testament because it's cover to cover. The second thing that she brings out is in verse 51, that he has a strong arm. She sees him as a mighty one with a strong arm. This passage in the reference to the strong arm refers to God's delivering work, especially during the Exodus. I'll share a passage with you. Uh, you can just kind of listen to this passage. If, you wanna, if you're one of those that's really quick and would like to turn there, it's in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Moses, this is after the, um, the wilderness experience. This is before they go into the promised land. This is sort of Moses' uh, last opportunity to remind the people of what God has done and to prepare them for what's in store. And this is what Moses said about God. He said, For ask now of the days that are past, which are before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other, whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. He's speaking of the Exodus. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of a fire, as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go in or to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation? By trials by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him." It seems that Mary has a view of the kind of God that God was in the Exodus. God did the unthinkable. God did the unlikely with his might and his strong arm. Drawing a nation of slaves from what somebody might call a nation of princes. From the nation of Egypt, he draws out a nation of slaves. God's arm and God's might and God's strength level then later the mighty wall of Jericho. God did the unlikely with the unlikely. God's arm then later, later won Canaan for a, this slave army. I'm thinking about what this slave army was like at that point. It would be like a bunch of dads, like a dad army, wearing dad jeans, driving minivans. This is who he uses to take Canaan? We're not talking about warriors. They're skilled at making bricks. And this is who God uses. It's God's arm and God's strength behind that army. God does the work. It's God's arm behind Gideon's 300 against thousands of Midianites. And it's God's arm behind Deborah. It's God's arm behind Samson. It's God's arm, mighty arm in his might and his strength behind a little boy with a slingshot. Man, read your Bibles and you will see... God's arm all over the place. God has a pattern, too, of doing unlikely things with the least likely. That's what's going on right here in this, what Luke calls, or what has been called is going on in Luke, the great reversal. The way God applies his might and his strength is in the application of what plays out as the great reversal You see it right here in the Magnificat, a God who, first of all, a God who looks on the humble estate. He looks on those of humble estate. He looks on the lowly. What in the world? That's a great reversal in and of itself, that a holy, mighty, all-powerful God looks on the lowly. 
It says right here in the Magnificat, too, that the proud are scattered. The great reversal. The mighty are brought down. The great reversal. He exalts, then, the humble. That's the way his might and his strength are applied. Where he fights for those who can't fight for themselves. And he looks on the humble estate of the lowly. He fills the hungry, it says in Mary's Magnificat here. He says, he leaves then the rich empty. Man, I'm just telling you right now, I kind of love a God like that. I love a God that's cheering and rooting for and tending to and seeing and acting on behalf of the underdogs. Man, it's like Rudy. Like, did you see the movie Rudy? It's like, I can't think of anything else but Rudy right now. This, underdog, this guy was an underdog and some awesome stuff happened to him. Man, I love that kind of God. Man, you want to know what happened to Hannah? Let's go back over there and see what happened to Hannah. Let's see what God does for the underdogs. God's might and his strong arm delivers in surprising ways. He has a pattern of doing unlikely things with the least likely. Okay, we're going to pick back up in our story with Hannah in verse 19. They rose early in the morning. You remember where we left off? Eli says, man, may the Lord bless you. May the Lord follow through on what you're asking of it. And she goes away glad. She's like, okay, cool. And then in verse 19, they, they rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. And, and then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer the Lord, offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice, this is I guess the next year, and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Pick up in verse 24. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed and the Lord has granted my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent. Don't you love that? Can you imagine how hard it would be for mom to say that? He's lent to the Lord as long as he lives. And he worshiped the Lord there. A new son is born to an insignificant woman. And this son will be the means of delivering Israel from a corrupt priesthood. Man, if you don't see the beauty in that. If you don't know how Mary, Mary must have had a diet of Hannah's story, then man, you need to study it some more. Are you snoozing? Let's just consider the beauty of that. That this child promised to a woman of lowly estate will be the deliverance of Israel. Let's see what Hannah then does in chapter 2. I just can't imagine that her hand wasn't on, a, on little Samuel's head as she sang this song. This is her version of a psalm. She says, My heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There's none holy like the Lord, for there's none besides you there's no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Listen to where she goes next. The great reversal. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Any other feeble folks in here enjoy that about, that kind of, about the kind of God that we have? Anybody any other feeble? Anybody feel feeble? Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren 
has borne seven. <laughs> what? Seven. They're filling up a whole row. But she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. I love a God like that. I love a God like that. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Man, what a wonderful God. Hannah is enjoying the same God that Mary's enjoying. The bows of the mighty are broken. The feeble are made strong. The full are hungry. The barren have seven. The poor are raised up. The needy are lifted up. This is the great reversal. It's the good news of Hannah's song. It's the good news of Mary's song. It's the good news of the book of Luke. It's the good news, people. This is how God is applying the good news and how his might and his arm are being applied by doing unbelievable, unthought of things for the unlikely. Man, I love a God like that. If you, um, I'm going to help you with this. I need help with this. I don't care where you are. I think we all need help with this. And Luke has some good help for God lovers. So I'm going to show you some, just a couple of glimpses, okay? A couple of glimpses into what's going on here in the book of Luke and this great reversal. Let me just say this. Turn to Luke 4. We're, we're, getting, we're getting close. We're getting close, but I want you to just engage. This is, this is, the, this is the, the cream of the message right here. This is the marrow. So if you've engaged to this point, don't check out right now because here's where it really, really, I hope, comes home for you. If you don't enjoy a God who's mighty and strong, helping the humble and lowly, or if you just kind of enjoy it a little bit in your head and you don't really, like, you're not feeling it, like Brad was talking about, yes, last week. If you're not, it's not hit you yet. Man, let's take a closer look here in the book of Luke. And let me just offer this. It might be because you don't see yourself as humble and lowly and broken and sick and in need of a Savior. It can happen to the best of us. And I think at times it happens to all of us. So let's see what Luke has, what kind of help Luke has for other God lovers. Luke chapter 4. If you just look at the headings, just look kind of over there at verse 21. Jesus heals a man with an unclean demon. Look at the next heading in my Bible. Jesus heals many. Okay, just turn the page over. Jesus cleanses a leper. Jesus heals a paralytic. The next page, chapter 6, uh, he heals a man with a withered hand. Just the page over. Um, he heals a centurion's son in chapter 7. He raises a widow's son. Do you have any idea why God would be up to those kind of things? Why Jesus would be up to those kind of things? Is he just like a, just want to show that he, how awesome he is? He doesn't need a doctor? And he wants to show everybody they don't need a doctor if he's around? Is there more going on to this? In chapter 4, verse 40, it says, When the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. That's pretty awesome, right? But what is he about? Why is he doing this for sick folk? Turn the page over to chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. Look at this. This is the, the answer. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. All right, tax collectors are like textbook sinners. I mean, like you turn in a dictionary to sinner, an ancient Hebrew dictionary. You know, I don't know what that looked like, but you turn to sinner, and there's Levi smiling. Tax collectors, man, they were the picture of corruption. And the tax booth was like the visual of corruption. And he sees Levi sitting at the tax booth. And this Jesus said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors. Whoa, sinners everywhere. And, there was this, and, and they're reclining at table with them. 
And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Why is he healing people everywhere? Because it is a beautiful picture of what he does for fellow tax collectors. That's the sickness he's talking about. Sin. Why is he healing everybody left and right? Because he came for the sick folk. If you with me for a moment enjoy a God that's looking on the lowest state of the needy and the insignificant and the marginalized, oh, and the sick and the poor, then we can celebrate together. Oh, I'm a sinner. Man, I didn't have a tax booth, but I'm equally guilty. Anybody else? Man, I love that kind of God that comes from those kind of folks. Come here, Levi. Man, that's, oh, that's my kind of God. I've not come to call the righteous. I wonder if he used air quotes. Was air quotes a thing? It should have been. I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Mm, I love that kind of God who's exercising his might and his strength with a great reversal. One more snapshot. Turn to Luke 14. We're about to land a plane, but don't, don't, don't disconnect because this, man, this is sweet right here. This like right here. Oh, this is so good. Luke 14. Verse 1. One Sabbath, he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. And they're watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. I forgot what dropsy is. I think it's like pleurisy. Do you remember, Christy? you physical therapist. You're supposed to remember. <laughs> I forget. It's an old-fashioned term for I think it's a heart condition. I mean, like he's like really not well. Okay? And there's a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. And then he took them and healed them and sent them away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that's fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Okay? And then jump down to verse 12. He says to the man who had invited him, kind of had that view of him healing the guy with dropsy. And now see where he picks up. In verse 12, he said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor. Hmm. Okay, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, this guy is, I'm just saying right now, he's completely oblivious to what Jesus has been saying. In fact, I bet it's one of those kind of times where Jesus said this and everybody's kind of like, okay, we're kind of uncomfortable. We don't really know what you're saying there. That's ridiculous for me to invite the lame and the sick and the poor and the needy to my house. So this guy responds, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. You can just say, he's like probably like Shakespeare. Hmm, blessed is he. And Jesus said to him, okay. A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at that time for the banquet, or at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything's now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see to it. Please have me excused. And the other said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. And the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor. 
Bring in the crippled. Bring in the blind. Bring in the lame. Bring in those of lowly estate because that's the kind of host that I am. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and there's still room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. We have the kind of God that has an eye for and a hand for, in fact, a mighty arm for the poor, the crippled, the blind, the, na- the lame, the needy folk, the spiritually poor and the destitute. Yes, I like that kind of God because that's who I am. Man, let me just tell you too, we're not just talking metaphor here. Bunch of fellow rich folk. We're not just talking metaphor because the problem with being rich is we have tons of stuff to pacify us and medicate us and occupy us to where that we have very little need. We have fields. We have oxen. We have new wives. Take the parable. We got all this stuff. We don't really need God like real poor people need God. Man, we have some stuff to learn from the real poor people. The poor churches, man, they are white hot for Jesus because they have nothing to pacify them. He's everything to them because they have nothing else. Do we have to be poor to get there? Man, no, but we got to work at it. We got to make sure that we are living needy, realizing our sin, realizing our poverty, realizing that we are tax collectors but for Christ. Man, the rich are less prone to live needy. So God does the unlikely with the least likely, and he exalts the humble and fills the hungry. If you don't see the gospel in that, let me just share with you that he takes those who are dead and walking according to the prince of the power of the earth, And he makes us alive together with Christ. And he raises us. And he seats us with the victor. That's the great reversal. I love a God like that. It's colossal, isn't it? He fights on behalf of those in humble, humble estate. Man, he fights for those needing a warrior. Anybody else? He acts for those needing a strong arm. He fights for the hungry, the feeble, the anxious. Anybody else anxious? He fights for the barren. He fights for the needy. He fights for the marginalized like Hannah. He fights for those who can't fight for themselves like Israel. And he fights for a young maiden that he sees and he acts named Mary. He fights for the blind, the leprous, the sick, the Samaritan, mm, the tax collectors, He fights for those who are enslaved to sin and death, and he does that fighting with a mighty strong arm. Man, that's a good God. He sees, he acts, and he helps. The last couple of verses of this passage we'll spend about a minute on. He's helped his servant Israel, verse 54, in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary presents this in her Magnificat, the last couple of lines of her Magnificat, as if it's a done deal. The tense in Greek is an aorist tense. It's presented as past tense. She's carrying a baby. She's carrying an unlikely thing that's going to be the hope of the world. And she's stating this as if it's already done. God has already helped his people. Done deal. Mary knows this God. She knows this is a God that sees, 
This is a God that acts, and this is a God that helps his people. It's unlikely at this point that Mary has a view to the world just yet. After all, Jesus hasn't preached yet. He's still right here. But when he's born and he grows up, he's going to point Mary outward, not just Israel. But he's going to be the hope of the world. What Samuel was for Israel, Jesus is going to be for the world. Man, that's good medicine. I love a God like that. God sees, God acts, and God helps. Let me pray. God, what a great God you are. Um, lots of sick folk in here. Lots of needy folk, lots of tax collectors. Uh, there's leprous. There's blind. Uh, there's marginalized. There's barren. Um, lots of folks of low, low estate in here, and we delight in a God that sees those of low estate and acts and helps And God, we enjoy that you have provided the ultimate help for us in the person and work of Jesus. Ah, we enjoy him today. We love you and we're thankful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're going to distribute the elements and we'll have our supper. And um, I have a few thoughts before we actually take and eat. So let me just give you this quick guidance in regards to the supper. If you're not trusting in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, the supper's not for you. It's not a snack. It's a meal with our God. And if you are, man, I want to encourage you to take and eat. If you have something between you or a brother or a sister or a family member or a friend or a workmate, um, and, and especially somebody in here, then, man, move over to them and let's clear that up so you can take and eat. And if that can't happen today, then maybe forego the supper this Sunday, but clear that up so that you can take and eat next week. Okay, let's distribute the elements.